would like to extend the warmest welcome to our listeners on the very first episode of Time Pieces, the new UMB History Society podcast. My name is Jenny, and I'm very excited, so let's get right into it. Today, we will be having what I'd like to call a lounge discussion, where I will be joined by a few of my colleagues to discuss a topic that is currently weighing heavy on our minds as historians. The topic of the day is Treaty 1752 and how it relates to the fishing dispute in Nova Scotia, currently unfolding between the Mi'kmaq peoples and non-Indigenous commercial fishers. In order to understand the depth of this issue, we need to turn back time. Today is October 1st, which is Treaty Day in Nova Scotia. I hope this episode can be recognized as a part of the commemorative celebrations of Indigenous culture, heritage, and above all else, their rights and freedoms in this country. Without further ado, I would like to introduce today's guests. Dr. Angela Tozer is a new member of the UMB History faculty whose research focuses on the relationship between settler colonialism and the Canadian political economy. Also joining us is Rachel Story, a fourth-year student in the History-English Joint Honors Program. Her identity is a mix between Indigenous ancestry and Celtic settler ties, and as a budding historian, she is very passionate about observing how those histories have shaped our society in the past, the present, and the future. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's uh, my pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Also good to be here. I would like for us to begin our talk today by explaining for our listeners the significance of Treaty Day in Canada, and more specifically in Nova Scotia. Rachel? Okay, so um, what is Treaty Day? But first, before we look at Treaty Day, we're going to have to look at who are the Mi'kmaq people. Um, So there's evidence dating the Mi'kmaq back like 10,000 years. Um, There's a lot of archaeological evidence of the Mi'kmaq being seasonally patterned with their habitation, hunting, and resources. Um, Spring and summers were spent on the coast and fall and winter were inland. Um, They relied on a variety of resources, uh, but they did, they used every bit. They were very sustainable. They used it for food, for tools, for clothing, and for shelter. So I think that's kind of important to note for the context of where our discussion is going to go today with conservation issues. So the Mi'kmaq people uh, along the coast, they were the first people on Turtle Island known as North America to be in contact with Europeans. But unfortunately, this contact resulted in significant depopulation of Mi'kmaq people. It marked the beginning of sociocultural genocide, which European colonialists inflicted on Indigenous people. So the Mi'kmaq were allies to the French colonial forces, but after the French were defeated in conflicts with Britain, Britain wanted to really ensure allyship and friendship, really strong air quotes on friendship with Mi'kmaq people. And so we have a string of treaties known as the Peace and Friendship Treaties beginning in 1726. However, today we're mostly focusing on the 1752 treaty. So now we can talk about what is Treaty Day? Like, what's the significance? Um, So Treaty Day is October 1st, and this was officially declared in 1986 by Donald Marshall Sr. as a way to honor treaties, which is a legal document used as a framework to outline the obligations of both the government and Indigenous people, and most importantly, to protect Indigenous inherent rights. 
So the purpose of Treaty Day is to commemorate the signing of these treaties, to bring education and awareness of Indigenous life and culture, and to keep an open dialogue for what the Grand Chief Ben Sillyboy asserted in 2016 at the Treaty Day ceremony, um, that we've come a long way, but there's still more to achieve. So October 1st is the day that was chosen because in, well, Article 6 of the 1752 Treaty, it states that on the 1st of October to come by themselves to be the Indigenous people or their delegates and receive the said presence and renew their friendship and submissions. So for our discussion today, it's important to note that in these treaties, uh, Indigenous people never ceded or sold their land or the water. This will be important. Just keep that in mind, basically. And remember that we are all treaty people, so Treaty Day is really important to all of us. Thank you for the overview, Rachel. Now that we've laid down some background knowledge, I would like to dig deeper into the history of peace and friendship treaties in Canada, and on Treaty 1752 in particular. I'm sure that many of our listeners have been seeing images, banners, and hashtags across social media that read along the lines of, I stand with Treaty 1752. Now I'm sure that at this point, most people recognize that these posts are connected to the fishing dispute in Nova Scotia. However, I think that it's important to talk in depth about the history of treaties and this particular one in order to understand why it is being invoked now. The floor is yours, Dr. Tozer. That was a really great uh, description Rachel had there of the importance of Treaty Day. Um, And I'm sure uh, as uh, Jennifer noted, uh, you might've seen quite a bit on social media, on Twitter, hashtags, things like this, of uh, hashtag 1752, referring to specifically this 1752 treaty. Um, So the historical context of these treaties, uh, what are known as the Peace and Friendship Treaties, uh, is quite important to understanding the Treaty of 1752. Um, And you'll note that they're called the Peace and Friendship Treaties, um, that's a plural on the treaties, uh, because they are, that's referring to um, the initial treaty, as Rachel said, in the 1720s, um, that's coming after a fairly large war called Dummer's War. Um, And it's an initial agreement uh, to continue peace and friendship, um, as Rachel kind of uh, alluded to, uh, between specifically the British um, and Indigenous nations on the East Coast. Um, Now, the 1752 treaty uh, refers, uh, is a treaty that refers explicitly to the Mi'kmaq, which is why uh, it's being evoked now. So... It's important to understand, I'm seeing a lot of on social media, for example, uh, this idea that the treaty is somehow associated with land surrender or ceding of territory. Um, So it's very much not about that at all. Um, And it's helpful to kind of move away our thinking of treaties. Um, If you were raised like me in this uh, kind of Canadian context, I was raised in, I grew up in Southern Ontario um, as a non-Indigenous person. Um, I was kind of understood the treaties as this kind of contractual agreement uh, where land was traded for some sort of usually money. Um, Now, this is not the case at all uh, with these, particularly with the Peace and Friendship Treaties and and also with other treaties as well, but we'll focus on this one. Um, And we have to think about it not so much as a contract, as a transaction, uh, but more as a covenant that is a description of an ongoing relationship and the responsibilities that the, at that time, British Crown and then later Canadian Crown has towards Indigenous nations and in the context of the Treaty of 1752, the Mi'kmaq Nation. 
Um, and I keep using the word Mi'kmaq nation because it's also helpful to think of this relationship as a nation to nation relationship in the same way you would think of maybe Canada and the United States, right? So Canada doesn't have express sovereignty over the United States. Canada cannot dictate what types of laws American citizens are subject to unless they're in the territorial bounds of Canada. Um, and this is the same kind of context of uh, what's happening now um, with the uh, fishery, uh, the lobster fisheries. So <laughs> the Mi'kmaq never gave up their sovereignty. They never ceded land um, in this, uh, in any treaties. Uh, so they are, and at the time as well, the British acknowledged that they are under their own sovereignty. They're not subjects of the British king, and it's quite explicit. Um, if you go back looking to the 17, um, the treaty, the peace, first peace and friendship treaty of the 1720s, um, one of the, the signatories of that treaty, um, uh, Penobscot leader, is after that treaty is signed, he's very concerned that he is being asked to um, put uh, his nation under the authority of the British crown. And he is very explicit that they did not acknowledge this. Um, he says uh, that they are not under, they are not subjects under the King of England. Um, so it's always been very explicit that there is no surrendering of land, there's no surrendering of territory. Uh, Rachel mentioned lands and waters, so I like to use the word territory because it includes lands and waters. Um, and it's very explicit. So what does the actual uh, 1752 treaty is coming out of this extremely violent context. Um, so in 1749, Halifax is established just, I'll just go over this very quickly. Um, it's established basically as a uh, garrison against uh, French, French garrisons that are already established. As a part of this ongoing constant um, hostilities and wars between France and Britain. Um, and Halifax is a very important place uh, to the Mi'kmaq. It's a place where a lot of um, rivers meet, waterways meet up. Um, it's an important um, moose area. And uh, so they were not too happy uh, with this garrison essentially being um, built here in this area that's now called Halifax. Um, so they tried to oust the British and Cornwallis basically declares out and out war um, in so far as to take it to a genocide. So in 1749, he issues what's called the Scalping Proclamation and it's very explicit. They offer 10 dinas uh, for every specifically Mi'kmaq person, including men, women, and children that are killed. Um, this, this bounty was rescinded in 1752. However, four years later, um, another governor, Charles Lawrence, issued another cash bounty um, about, on the Mi'kmaq, which was actually not even rescinded until the 2000s. So it was ongoing. Now, this is a very disturbing piece of history but I'm glad you brought this up because it is important for our listeners to understand the extent of the violence and cruelty that Treaty 1752 came out of. Dr. Tozer, would you be able to speak a bit about the language used in Treaty 1752? Is it ambiguous or contradictory like the Royal Proclamation or is it more direct? Now, um, the language in the 1752 uh, Peace and Friendship Treaty 
which is established in the background of this ongoing violence. Um, and again, you wouldn't need a peace and friendship treaty unless there was no peace or friendship. Um, so they uh, were very explicit. This language is very explicit. So it opens up by talking about that um, the delegates um, the, of quote said tribe, their heirs and the heirs of their heirs forever. So it opens up by talking about this is going to be in perpetuity, which means forever. It's supposed to be describing this ongoing relationship. There is no end to it. So everybody has a responsibility. And um, as Rachel said, we are all treaty people. And this is one of the reasons why, because it never ended. And we all have this responsibility to uphold these um, of the, and respect the relationships described here. And it goes on to say, and this is something that you might've seen on social media quite a bit, this specific quote, um, I'll just read it here briefly. Um, it says, it is agreed that the tribe of Indians shall not be hindered from, but have free liberty of hunting and fishing as usual. And that if they shall think of a truck house needful at the river, Shebenectedi or any other place of their resort, they shall have the same built and proper merchandise lodged therein to be exchanged for what the Indian shall have to dispose of. And in the meantime, the said Indian shall have free liberty um, notice the language that said Indians are referring explicitly to the Mi'kmaq here, shall have free liberty to bring for sale to Halifax or any other settlement within this province, skins, feather, fowl, fish, and any other thing they have to sell where they shall have liberty to dispose thereof to their best advantage. So to me, this language is very explicit. It means that it is part of the, the uh, relationship is that the British do not infringe on Mi'kmaq rights. So it's not just only their hunting rights, but their right to sell as well. So they are not supposed to be blocked. They're not supposed to be hindered in any way. Um, so this is pretty much the gist of the 1752 treaty um, that you might see uh, quoted everywhere. Um, so to me, that's pretty clear. And um, yeah, I hope that explains a little bit of the historical context and um, just, uh, yeah, the explicit nature of the, the treaty itself. Thank you, Dr. Tozer. Now that we've discussed the history of this document, I want to briefly talk about how Treaty 1752 has been invoked in court cases in the past. The first time the treaty was used in a court case was in Nova Scotia in 1928 by Mi'kmaq Grand Chief Gabriel Silliboy. It is important to note that this case is also recognized as the first step in a near century long fight for treaty recognition in Canada. Grand Chief Silliboy was tried and convicted for trapping muskrat during the closed season in West Bay. He refuted these charges by asserting his rights to hunt and fish as a Mi'kmaq that he received from the Crown. His defense relied primarily on Treaty 1752, but also on the Treaty of 1726, which clearly affirms the protection of Mi'kmaq fishing, hunting, and planting. Silliboy maintained that his rights to hunt and trap were not limited by the seasons instituted by the Nova Scotia government. However, according to historian Jamie Baptiste, the court ruled that past treaties between the Crown and the Mi'kmaq were not valid, and, I quote, they were worth less than the paper they were written on. Although the Grand Chief lost this uphill battle and was a target of a great injustice, this case became a point of reference for Indigenous peoples facing similar discriminatory judicial proceedings decades later. For example, the R versus Marshall case of 1999 successfully reaffirmed the validity of Treaty 1752 and the Treaty of 1760-61. In the Supreme Court case, Donald Marshall Jr. was acquitted of his charges for fishing eel out of season. 
The Supreme Court's ruling emphasized indigenous rights to fish and hunt throughout the year, while also affirming their rights to establish a moderate livelihood. This groundbreaking case has become a milestone in the fight for treaty recognition, and it is often referred to as the Marshall Decision. However, this ruling was not popular among non-Indigenous commercial fishers, and it inflamed their pre-existing prejudices towards the Mi'kmaq. I also want to add that in 2017, both the Premier and the Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia issued official pardons for Grand Chief Silliboy. However, these apologies may seem empty today considering the lack of support for and protection of Mi'kmaq rights by the Nova Scotia government during this time when century-old prejudices are resurfacing. It has taken us a while to travel back through time to reach the present day, but here we are. I hope that this journey so far has demonstrated how all of these issues from the past are connected by common themes and patterns that have continued to reemerge throughout history. Now let's get into the crux of the issue at hand, the fishing dispute in Nova Scotia. So when it comes to the issue of fishing in Nova Scotia, which it has been trending on social media, um, quite a few people are aware of what's been going on, but if you're not aware, uh, basically what's happening is commercial fishermen who are non-Indigenous um, basically have an issue with the Mi'kmaq people of the, in Nova Scotia uh, exercising their treaty rights, uh, practicing their culture of fishing. They have the right through the Treaty of 1752 to fish whenever they want. And uh, the commercial fishermen don't like that. Their main argument is that it is endangering conservation efforts, that this is a supposedly vulnerable time for lobsters and that fishing is going to exhaust it. So very quickly, I would like to discuss a little bit further this idea around environmentalism and conservation, because to me, it seems to be somewhat ironic that these non-Indigenous commercial fishers are accusing the Indigenous fishers of exploiting the resources. Rachel, do you think that you could talk to this point a little bit for us? Oh, definitely. Like, it's so perturbing how they've twisted the narrative so much against Indigenous people because Indigenous people are intrinsically environmentalists. They are land defenders. When they take from the land for, like, like to live, uh, for food, for anything, they give back. Like there's a ceremony in every exchange with the land. And it's just, it's very disgusting that commercial fishermen would take on this narrative like, oh, we care so much about preserving the lobsters in, in the ocean, when really it's not. They're using that to mask their economic interests. And um, like um, capitalism, uh, exploiting the land for profit, those are not indigenous beliefs. That is not part of indigenous culture. That is colonial. It is so colonial, it makes me sick. <laughs> yes, and it's it's very insulting, the fact that they think that they can just get away with kind of trying to construct these false narratives about indigenous people um, fishing outside of what their needs are. Like, how can people convince themselves that Indigenous rights to establish a moderate livelihood are an infringement on their own rights. That sounds like privilege to me. It's it's not a competition. Mm -hmm. It's about treaty recognition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, the commercial fishermen, they've been destroying Mi'kmaq boating tools and traps, and they went as far to track down and harass people who obtain fish and lobster from the fishermen. Um, there's also been reports that Indigenous people were refused services at stores, hotels, and gas stations. And um, they've been ramming commercial fishing boats into Mi'kmaq boats. And there's been, I don't know how many, but so many commercial boats surrounding the two or three Mi'kmaq vessels that are in the water and thrashing up against their boats, shooting flare guns at them. So there's just so much going on and they're really making it dangerous. So your morning news, they did an interview with Chief Michael Sack of the uh, Mi'kmaq First Nation in Nova Scotia. And then they uh, followed with an interview with a non-Indigenous commercial fisherman. And basically what they said is uh, they went back to the 1999 Marshall decision of the court. Uh, they didn't give the right for the Mi'kmaq to fish. They recognized Indigenous inherent rights. That's an important uh, clarification to make. But uh, this issue of moderate livelihood, it hasn't been defined, which is why a lot of non-Indigenous people have an issue with it because they, they have this fear that the Mi'kmaq will take it and run with it. And like I said, exhaust the resources of like the fish and the lobster. But um, just to put some numbers out there, uh, the commercial fishermen, they have a total of 3,900,000 traps. They're allowed to have that much up in the water in the St. Mary's Bay, whereas the uh, Mi'kmaq First Nation has 150 traps. Wow, those numbers really do speak for themselves. So just let that number sink in. Because if this was really about conservation, the commercial fisheries, they'd be making like those lobsters in the hot water right now. If it was not about, if it was not about race, if it was not about indigenous inherent rights, then it would be the commercial fishermen and fisheries who would be in a lot of trouble right now. And even the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, they said that the lobster stocks are extremely healthy. So it's very clear that the Mi'kmaq people, they aren't overfishing, they aren't making a profit, they're literally just exercising their treaty rights and practicing their cultural heritage. And that's an issue how? So it's just very clear that this isn't about environmentalism or anything like that. There was even a point where some person, I'm not going to name names, but they started a petition to reinstate residential schools over this. Yeah, I saw that. Um, that is incredibly disturbing. Yeah. Really disgusting, yeah. It is disgusting. And so it's just, it's very clear that this is about racism. This is about protecting economic interests. It's just very, I don't even know the word to describe it. Yeah, a lot of awful things came out of it. Uh, today, there was a little bit of good news. Uh, Mi'kmaq chiefs have reduced the state of emergency to a state of, I believe it, the word is readiness. Um, so there's some signal that tensions are decreasing. And of course, like Hurricane Teddy uh, put a stop to the, the flotilla, I guess, basically, of uh, the settler fisher boats. Um, and everybody had to come in because uh, when they had that line of boats to stop the Mi'kmaq fishers going out, a hurricane came through and uh, they had to obviously go back to port. So, yeah, I think uh, Rachel kind of hit on a really great um, point of contention here, which is this idea of conservation. 
Um, so there's a lot of issues going on. Of course, there's people who are just outright anti-Indigenous. I mean, I don't think there's another word for it when you're talking about, even as a quote-unquote joke, or I think the this Twitter, uh, this tweet, and the uh, consequent comments on that were not really a joke. Um, uh, people do still have this belief. Um, so you do have this pretty hardcore, like anti-Indigenous uh, sentiment that's coming out and it's exposed in conflicts like this. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of those um, fishers, the settler fishers, uh, the white fishers, the non-Indigenous fishers, um, they are kind of using this language of conservation. Um, and as Rachel pointed, pointed out, like if you look at the numbers, obviously, there's no way that the Mi'kmaq are even close to overfishing in any sense of the word, um, even if every single Mi'kmaq person went out and fished in St. Mary's Bay, you know what I mean? Like, so it's just silly to think of this as a conservation issue. However, the word conservation itself um, has a very specific meaning, I think, um, when you're looking at uh, how things such as global commodities work and how global commodities are transferred around the world, um, so conservation kind of starts in the 19th century, the late 19th century, and it comes out of a concern of um, the depletion of stocks on the market. So if you want to, for example, think of uh, the timber trade, um, there's a lot of concern uh, about the, what the, to use the 19th century term, the quote unquote denuding. So they, uh, there was a lot of British references in places, even in South Asia, in uh, British uh, uh, commissions about the quote denuding of Prince Edward Island, which was all the trees were cut down uh, to use a lot for shipbuilding. So there was a concern that all the trees are being cut down um, and it's causing quote miasma, it's causing, you know, it's uh, adding to malaria in the so-called tropical countries, all these other ideas about um, But primarily uh, this movement of conservation started as this idea of what they would call rational maintenance of the forest, the scientific maintenance of the forest. So the idea is like, just to put it very simply, let's say you have three acres, one acre you have the trees in the state that just were cut down, the second acre you have the trees that are in like, um, that are a couple years old growth, and the third acre are trees ready to cut down next season. So the idea of conservation in this kind of system where you're trying to constantly have commodities on the market is that the, um, you don't ever deplete the resources and you always have something there to sell in the market. So in the same way with the lobsters, conservation, like the idea of seasons and seasonality and fisheries and things like this, like the Mi'kmaq have their own ideas of seasons, but the one that is dictated to them um, by the Canadian state um, very much has to do with this, like keeping the supply up it's about this kind of, think about it as like a rotation of the commodities um, to be constantly available on the market. And it's always pushed so that the maximum amount of profit could be made. Um, and I give you the example of trees uh, just because it's maybe more visible. We can see what it looks like when trees are cut down. And we all, you know, um, can see if you drove through anywhere in New Brunswick or um, wherever, you can see what it looks like to have those newly planted forest areas and then the, the places that are going to be logged and things like this. Um, so you can apply this idea as well to the fisheries. So a lot of most of these lobsters are being fished to be sold um, to global markets, right? And it's not the Mi'kmaq that are doing that or even have the capacity to do that. So you have these 
this other issue of um, that the uh, fishers, the non-Indigenous fishers are not really talking about, like they're directing all of their focus towards the Mi'kmaq fishing out of season. But I think that has to do with, um, a lot of it is a misunderstanding of what seasonality is, like it is uh, dictated, right, by the state. And of course we should have seasons and uh, there's gonna be huge problems if people are fishing all year round, but the Mi'kmaq have their own regulations for that, right? Of course, the Mi'kmaq have their own understanding of seasonality, and they certainly have their own methods of conserving resources. But Dr. Tozer, I want to address the way that you are speaking about conservation because it may be unfamiliar to some of our listeners. They may understand it to be a primarily environmentalist effort. However, it seems that this idea of resource conservation that you speak of is rooted in the conservation of a capitalist market rather than ecosystems. Can you speak on this? Um, So the idea of conservation very much has its own Um, history and it has its own meaning the word conservation is not really what we would call uh, you know environmental environmentalism right Um, there may be some overlap there but it's not to protect the lobsters for the sake of protecting the lobsters it's to protect the lobster stocks for the sake of having the kind of maximum profit on uh, selling to global markets Um, So there's the one kind of issue of conservation. And the other issue, one of the non-Indigenous fishers who said, my problem isn't with the Mi'kmaq, my problem is with the DFO, the the Department of Fisheries, Ocean and Fisheries. Um, So interesting that they would put up barricades, stop the Mi'kmaq from fishing and not barricades to the DFO offices, uh, which kind of points to the fact that the problem isn't with the DFO, it's with the Mi'kmaq, as Rachel was saying. Um, But the second part of this is the whole entire licensing system, right? So who has the authority and the jurisdiction to license over these commodities? What jurisdiction does the Canadian state to issue licenses to Mi'kmaq people, right? Do they have the jurisdiction to do that? And the other problem with the, the way fishing licenses are done, they are so intensely competitive. And we're talking about areas that don't have a lot of kind of diversity and economic opportunities uh, for the non-Indigenous fishers as well, right? So you get stories coming out of Prince Edward Island, for example, of people mortgaging their houses to buy a fishing license. So it's making the licensing system itself is making this very intense situation uh, where you have this high stakes, very intense fishing season, where if you don't make your catch, et cetera, et cetera, and you are in huge amounts of debt, uh, just to obtain these fishery licenses. And we're talking about uh, places that don't have a lot of diversity and economic opportunity either. Um, so this is, you know, creates even more of a strain where you have uh, Mi'kmaq people going in and fishing as is they're uh, upheld by the treaty relationship. Um, and then maybe the non-Indigenous settlers seeing this kind of not really understanding that conservation, um, things such as seasons, the Mi'kmaq have their own methods of conservation, have their own ideas of seasons, um, and how this is absolutely not depleting lobster stocks um, in this specific context. Um, and then getting uh, feeling like they have no recourse and getting angry at the people who are right there, um, who are the Mi'kmaq. Um, This is not to excuse a lot of the racist behavior or the violent behavior, of course. Um, It is not because it is, at the end of the day, individuals choosing to go and create these flotillas and blockades and shooting flares at human beings. However, there's all of this other extreme tension that's kind of put in place by this licensing system. And these um, 
non-Indigenous fishers, um, maybe a few of them are, but they're not exactly making a ton of money either. They probably make enough to support themselves for the whole year, or maybe a little bit more than that. I don't know the ex exact numbers, but they're not making, for example, the money of um, maybe people who are selling on the lobsters on global markets. So for a lot of people that are seeing this situation kind of unfold from the outside, we're, we're, we're all kind of just seeing how um, the actions of individuals such as these non-Indigenous commercial fishers, like how their actions and the way that they're treating the Mi'kmaq with their protests, we already see that there's a lot of injustice and a lot of racism happening. Um, but what do you think we could kind of touch on about the role of the police in this situation? Because recently they've also kind of come under criticism for their response or their lack of a response to the situation. Well, I saw a video of a police officer and there, he was standing between the protesters, the ones who were supporting the Mi'kmaq and then the commercial fishermen who were on the sidelines. But uh, there was a commercial fisherman. He was right up in his face. And then this officer, he was like, look, you might not like um, you might not like it. I might not like all this, but they have a right to be out there. And I just want to keep everybody safe. And like, he just kept emphasizing how he wanted to keep everybody safe. And for a lot of people, especially in the indigenous community, that one statement from that one officer, it really made an impact on the relationship between police and like indigenous people. Because like you said, there's been so much tension between uh, police and uh, minority groups and racialized people especially with the Black Lives Matter movement in uh, North America. But yeah, it was really nice and refreshing, which is sad to say, to see such a positive role from a law enforcement officer. And there was the protesters, there was a point where tensions broke and people began actually physically fighting. And I'm not sure who from which side, probably good that they don't share this information, but there were two individuals arrested for being physical and violent at the protest. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I know the video you're referring to. Um, it's interesting, yeah. Um, but, and also the language of that officer where he's saying we, like who is he referring to as the we, you know, himself um, as a non-Indigenous person. And um, yeah, a lot of times mm -hmm. when you start to hear this kind of discourse around, we need to hear both sides, we need to hear both sides. Um, sometimes it kind of devolves into detracting from the issue at hand, uh, which is the upholding and respecting the treaty relationship, right? Um, so it's, uh, I think the whole situation is very unfortunate, even for the non-Indigenous fishers, um, just because of the way, again, like I said, the licensing system is set up, the way the global kind of commodity systems are set up, uh, the way the fishery, lobster fisheries are set up, um, it's not set up in a way that is really benefiting them either. Um, but to direct their anger towards the Mi'kmaq um, is the issue, right? Um, but uh, directing it to the DFO, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, I mean, they're the ones mm -hmm. who waited 21 years to even come close to defining what it means to fish a moderate livelihood, right? Um, so there's a real uh, sense of responsibility that the Canadian government should be um, taking up to uphold these treaty relationships that they don't seem to be um, doing, even just defining what they mean by a moderate livelihood, right? Um, that's causing this conflict in a way, right? So there's these structures put up around people and people are acting basically within them. So 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's a real kind of need, I think, uh, for the government itself to kind of take a step up and, and start to themselves uh, recognize that treaty relationship as well. Um, you see a lot of this kind of language around we are all treaty people, etc. Um, asking people such as myself, non-Indigenous peoples to be aware of that. Um, but I think we all should also turn uh, to the Canadian government and their role in this as well. I would like to thank Rachel Story and Dr. Tozer again for joining me on the first episode of Timepieces. I hope our listeners have found this discussion as interesting, informative, and thought-provoking as I have. Along with the sources for this podcast, in the description I have shared links to several initiatives that are aimed to support the Mi'kmaq and their fight for treaty recognition. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.